Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to try to understand what the hell is going on right now. The Feminist Present comes at you from the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, and I'm Laura Good, a writer who teaches there. I am joined by a feminist man of many dimensions, my co-host and dear friend, Adrian Dowd. Hi, Laura. Adrian is a scholar of gender and sexuality, a writer in a great many genres, and also the director of the Clayman Institute, which means he is also sort of my boss. Great. Uh, Way to make it awkward. Before we get to everything else we have planned for today, we just want to acknowledge that almost everything you're about to hear was recorded before Tuesday, May 25th, the day that George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man and father of three, was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, who asphyxiated Mr. Floyd with a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. This, too, was after 26-year-old Breonna Taylor was gunned down by members of the Louisville Metro Police Department. We'll be closely attuned to the value of protest, insurrection, and civil disobedience in the weeks to come, including those taking place across all 50 states in George Floyd's name at this very moment. And for now, we just want to say that we stand with the courageous folks who are risking their personal safety to protest police violence and affirm the sanctity of black lives. In our episode today, we'll dig deep into the history of how black women invented the feminist and womanist movements. We'll talk about how the movements for feminist and anti-racist liberation have always been intertwined, even when white feminists have failed to act accordingly. And on the subject of feminist history, why don't you tell the nice people at home a little bit more about the Clayman Institute for Gender Research, Professor Daub? I'd love to. So the Clayman Institute for Gender Research puts research into action by inspiring innovative research agendas and sort of pioneering solutions meant to advance gender equality. The Institute was founded in 1974 at a time when women academics were pretty much all the firsts in their fields to ensure that feminist research methods and politics would always have a kind of sustained and firm public platform on the campus. And it, until today, serves as an incubator for collaboration, engaging diverse groups of experts and scholars to identify and tackle the next big questions related to gender equality. Here's a taste of some of the dialogues the Clayman Institute facilitates. Hi, and uh, good evening. I do not know a way to write well that does not require courage. Mm. Courage requires safety. And we've built our profession to become increasingly more precarious. Create some sort of strategy and organize around ending this violence. And the way in which to do that is to shift every system to be more equitable. Rumors about sexual misconduct in particular, how they sort of like undermine the idea of what the private is. So much of predatory behavior happens within institutions that are designed to protect us. Everybody's a genius in a genius system, (laughs) right? If there's a machine around you to build genius, you will miraculously produce geniuses. How about that? We do not have to be alone and helpless in our suffering. What you really need to know about the Clayman Institute is that it just makes you feel wonderful. Like, as soon as you walk in the door, we're located in the Carolyn Atneve house at Stanford, and I can't really describe how uniquely nourishing it feels to meet with students and colleagues and talk about feminist literature within an institute named for a woman and a building named for a woman. What I'm saying is there's always chocolate at the Clayman Institute. The data is very clear that chocolate has a positive impact on gender research, by the way. I commissioned the study myself. <laughs> uh, should we talk about the unvaccinated elephant in the room? Miss Rona? So sick of talking about Miss Rona. She she sucks up all the air. People are weary of Miss Rona, but if we're using feminism as a lens for analyzing the world, and that's what you and I do for a living, I think, we're always kind of talking about the relationship between what's private and what's public, right? About how bodies are made political, 
under certain conditions and how they're made to disappear from politics under other conditions. And, you know, if you think about it, in mid-2020, feminism is in the mainstream of our public dialogue, but at the same time, we're all confined to our homes. We have online platforms, but, you know, the public intellectuals of the kind we're going to be interviewing here are also busy chasing toddlers, losing work, and sheltering in place. I think now is a good time to refer to an extremely on-point tweet from Jasmine Shari Sanders, who is at Jazz Money Records on Twitter, and she writes... Okay, but the fact that professional-slash-academic feminists and queers spent decades arguing that women had robust lives and potential outside the domestic arena, yet here we all are at the end of the world, baking bread and washing shit, is kind of funny, sorry. End quote. It's a little bit funny, as Elton John would say. Maybe it's funnier if you're not one of the people chasing toddlers? Which I think Elton John is now. Do I have that right? Um, at least one of my children will probably be making a cameo in each of these episodes. So I'm going to just call that a creative choice for this podcast. Um, Ruth Asawa's kids were part of her art and mine are too. But that's kind of part of the public-private tension we're talking about, right? The screaming kids, the messy kitchen, the pantsless spouses. In this particular era of work, for those of us who are lucky to still be working, all these things are kind of entering the frame. And at the same time, I'm, you know, I say this as someone who doesn't have children that are likely to interrupt this broadcast. It's easy to say that we all become X, Y, and Z. And that's not totally true either, is it? Or at least it puts a lot of pressure on who the we and the all really are. And not all of us get to shelter in place for one thing, right? And, and not all of us have the kind of life that's ultimately kind of charming and cute when it wanders into the frame kindergartner walked in on me in the shower with his zoom video on i don't know if that's charming to flash a dozen kindergartners where would you say that falls oh we could do a whole story around that uh, so sorry by the it's way it's not not great uh and what's worse i can't even shake off the humiliation of flashing kindergartners by going to one of clayman's amazing events on stanford's eerily beautiful campus right well, before the collapse of the world, the Clayman Institute hosted this series of fabulous in-person events, you know, where we could have writers like Alexander Chi come by and talk to us about drag and Tracy McMillan Cottom would drop by to bless our graduate students with her insight on higher ed. And we hold book group discussions of Chanel Miller's Know My Name. And and I, I have to say, I just kind of miss them, miss these events. Well, Adrian, I have good news for you. We are going to call all the feminist public intellectuals that we have enormous brain crushes on and ask them all the questions we wish we could ask them in a crowded lecture hall, followed by a beautiful dinner in a restaurant. I'm down. Uh, so who's up first? I am beyond excited to report that our first guest will be the brilliant author and editor Yvette Dion. Yvette is the editor-in-chief of Bitch Media, a beacon for feminism in these dark media times, and she is the author of not one but two 2020 books, Fat Girls Deserve Fairy Tales 2, Living Hopefully on the Other Side of Skinny, and Lifting as We Climb, Black Women's Battle for the Ballot Box, a young adult history of black women's suffragists, which we will talk about today. Yvette is also at Free Black Girl on Twitter, where I've long been madly in love with the way she enacts exactly what she writes about, Lifting as She Climbs. Yvette is a strikingly generous, dedicated literary citizen, and I've witnessed her uplift many, many emerging writers, especially young Black women. Anybody who's followed Yvette's career can see how focused she is, not just on writing beautiful sentences herself, which she does on the regular, but on building collective editorial community and power for a broad caress of Black feminist and womanist thinkers. I'm always really drawn to those writers who hold true to that collective karmic ethic, this principle of widening the hatch in the Kimberly Crenshaw sense of the word. 
Yvette Dion widens the shit out of that hatch. And we were lucky enough to bring Yvette out to campus last fall in an event about whisper networks or gossip as a feminist survival tactic and what happens to it in the age of Me Too. So one question, do we have to talk about Miss Rona? Are we making an executive decision always to refer to the novel coronavirus as Miss Rona? We definitely are. I think we are, yeah. Oh yeah, and, and I think we should credit Black Twitter for that moniker, by the way. So credited, absolutely. Okay, so we'll talk about Miss Rona a little, but we're always here, on and offline, to talk about books, foremothers, feminist journeys, gender research, academia, power and privilege, and the art of making a living in the humanities, too. I think if I were pitching this podcast, I'd call it like, call your girlfriend meets you're wrong about? WTF with Mark Maron meets Gender Trouble by Judith Butler? The L Word meets I Love Dick, starring Roxanne Gay? I'd listen to that. I'd listen to that. But seriously, folks, welcome to The Feminist Present, where we will interview leading feminist public intellectuals about sharing meaning, growth, and knowledge, both within and beyond a time of fear and restriction. What does liberation look like now? Okay, Yvette. Adrian and I have been nerding out on your book so hard. So, okay. So feminist nerd time. I found this extremely nineties card game as I was thinking about all the suffragettes in your book. It's called great women for mothers. And it's a full deck of women cards, which is like cool. Yeah. But so there's 11 primary cards and I thought we could play a little game where we guess how many of those 11 for mothers listed are black women. Oh, <laughs> if I had to guess this, I'll give okay. you a few clues. I'll, I'll give you a few clues. The original game came out. There's a 1979 date somewhere on here. And the edition I'm holding is 1992. Out of 11. If I had to guess, mm-hmm. I would say two. Adrian, do you have a guess? Maybe I'm too optimistic. I'd say four. Okay. I love it. So the real answer is between your two estimates, it is three. And for our next round, would you like to guess any one of those three prominent black feminists? Sojourner Truth. For sure. Obviously nailed it. Um, I would say probably, you said 1992? Correct. Shirley Chisholm. Nope. No. Earlier. Harriet Tubman. Correct. Of course. I know my 90s. Wait, wait. I want to give you... So both of those women are mentioned in your book. I want to give you a clue that the third woman is prominently featured in your book, Lifting As We Climb. Ida B. Wells. No, it should have been Ida B. Wells. I mean... What? It's Mary Shad Carey. Huh. Really? This card game is probably the only reason why I knew who Mary Shad Carey was before reading your book. There she is. Well, yeah. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. And that's the only probably known photo. That photo on that card is probably the only It was photo. the same mm-hmm. photo that was in your book. Exactly. Yeah. For a bonus round, they do feature Bright Eyes, who's a Native American. Um, but all the other women are white, and many of them are also mentioned in your book. Okay, so that was just my fun 90s intro. <laughs> We're already talking about your book. But Yvette, in your words, how would you describe your book, Lifting As We Climb? I would describe my book as a young adult nonfiction book that really shows the long history of suffrage for Black women, that it's not something that began at Seneca Falls and ended in 1920, like it has been an integral part of the fabric for Black women from 
prior to abolition, even through the present, like the book ends now. And it strikes me as a book that couldn't have come out at a better time, right? The 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, but also an upcoming election and, frankly, a historic moment where sort of the question of what it means to go out in public and to exercise your right to vote is once again sort of contested in really interesting ways, in ways that obviously the parents of your book could not have anticipated, but that still deeply resonates in some way with the concerns around how do you make a democracy work for everyone? Yeah. And I, I think that that is one of the reasons I was really thrilled that Viking, the publisher, approached me about writing the book, because it felt it felt really important. And not just because it was the centennial, but also because I mean, even prior to 2016, voting rights have been under attack. And I really thought that this was an apt opportunity to give specifically children the information they need to make an informed decision about why they vote and why it's so important to try to gain access to the vote. It can become easy to be discouraged around voting. I felt like this book could really, before children reach the age of 18, really give them the information and the knowledge to make an informed decision about why they want to even register to vote or why it's something they should be looking forward to. Voting nerds. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I thought was kind of an interesting theme and one that I'm imagining is actually, there's a lot of celebration in this book, but there's also a kind of countercurrent to that, namely the persistent willingness of white suffragettes to sell out African-Americans in the process of gaining their vote. And of course, that's something that doesn't lend itself to a particularly triumphalist or even a particularly positive story. And I think it's kind of fascinating to think about in this day and age, because, you know, we're, we're Americans are sort of being asked again to forego certain privileges in the context of COVID. And there's a kind of freak out among especially white Americans, that maybe being asked to forego these certain privileges makes them, quote unquote, like another group, right? I don't know if you saw this. There was this picture going around Twitter of this white lady holding up a sign, muzzles are for dogs and slaves. I don't know if you've seen that. I am a free human being. And I thought, oh, my goodness. It's like, on the one hand, you. But on the other hand, I thought, gee, this is completely seamless with how someone like Susan B. Anthony framed suffrage, right? The idea that you know women have to come first because otherwise they're being treated like African-Americans. And it was just shocking to me, this kind of, you know, I'll freely confess I'm white enough that I'm constantly shocked by these continuities. But uh, <laughs> I found it amazing that like to see basically that, you know, the 1840s were alive and well on a poster in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I I would love to say that I'm surprised, (laughs) but unfortunately I'm not. Like, this is the first time for many people that they are having their bodily autonomy infringed upon. And so the only connections they can draw are to historical movements for liberation. Like, there was a woman who was wearing, like, a, a cut mask, and, like, one part of it said my body and the other part said my choice. Wow. Which is clearly derived from a movement around reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Clearly. But that is what they have to draw upon because that is what those movements have historically been about. So when we think about the 1840s, voting wasn't something that Black people, and that at that time, Black men wanted to do just because they wanted to vote. It was a part of a larger strategy to really bestow Black people dignity in order to give them access to legislatures and to try to lobby to pass laws that extended their freedoms instead of curtailing them. So voting has always been a part of a larger strategy. It wasn't the end goal. And so for suffragists like Susan B. Anthony, like uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, 
voting for them was I want to be equal to my husband, which is to be clear, is not an awful goal to have. Like everyone should have equal access to the ballot box. But this for Black people was different. Like even if you got the access to the right to vote, there were so many other things to fight for that it literally just became a tool. Like it wasn't an end goal. It was a tool in order to give people the access to other things. And that I think is the same thing that is happening now. Unfortunately, (laughs) very unfortunate. I thought your historical research was so masterful in drawing and guiding that narrative exactly and to illustrate that point I kind of wanted to read like again deep nerd (laughs) but I kind of wanted to read two passages from your book that are quotes from some of the women featured in it that really illustrate this conflict that we're describing about white women falling down on the job for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. so we brought up Susan B. Anthony and I think she's you know obviously a really critical feminist to always be talking about but I think History tends to erase some of her uglier quotes, and you include a really important one wherein Susan B. Anthony says, if intelligence, justice, and morality are to have precedence in the government, let the question of woman be brought up first and that of the Negro last. I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Mm -hmm. How that sets up hundreds of years of erasure of Black women as non-belonging to the category of women. I just want to contrast that with an absolutely brilliant and like an incredibly resonant quote from Frances Ellen Watkins Hopper at the first National Women's Rights Convention since the Civil War in May 1866. Hopper says, I do not believe that giving women the ballot is immediately going to cure all the ills of life. I do not believe that white women are dewdrops just exhaled from the skies. I think that like men, they may be divided into three classes, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. The good would vote according to their convictions and principles, the bad as dictated by prejudice or malice, and the indifferent will vote on the strongest side of the equation with the winning party. You know, I read that and I was a little bit reminded of the 53% of white women who voted for Donald Trump in 2006. Just a little bit reminded of that (laughs) conundrum. (laughs) It was just, it was so illuminating and prescient to place those passages in the context of our historical moment. And I thought it was so masterful the way you as an author gave us that opportunity to do that. Yeah, I would say some of that can be credited to my editors. Um, When I went into writing this book, like the very first draft, because Black women are so obscured in the history, the book started with white women. It's almost like, I always say, putting puzzle pieces together. Like literally looking at a meeting and saying, who would have been here? Just based on what you know and the research you've done, who would have been here? And so my editors were really careful about saying, this is really cute and great, but you need to bring this back to Black women. Who was there? What would they have said? What were they doing in this time? especially in the first third of the book before the Civil War, Mm -hmm. a lot of the Black women featured were formerly enslaved and had escaped. And so they didn't want to be photographed. You know, pulling photos for this book was a task. There were some photos I just could not find because they don't exist, Mm -hmm. right? And so trying to piece that together to figure out if we were talking about Seneca Falls, We know that Black women weren't there. No one has ever said why they weren't there. You have to piece together why they would not have been there or why they would not have Mm. been in London Mm. for the anti-world slavery convention. Mm -hmm. That kind of historical, I call it excavation work, was really the bulk of this. By the time I started writing, 
all of that had been pieced together. Like, okay, now I know why people weren't here. Let me figure this out. And so the writing process was really like walking through a maze almost of how do we keep circling back to the same, to the same problems over and over again? If I see that happening thematically, really figuring out why it's happening. Mm -hmm. That part is a lot of that comes from my own brain because it's not, it doesn't exist. Well, and as I was taking in the way you piece together your research where there is so much erasure, Mm -hmm. one really poignant conflict emerged to me that on the one hand, writing and education and literacy are crucially important to these women, right? Like this is, that is the pivot point is women's education and women fighting for their access to education and women fighting for their right to be storytellers and historiographers and to involve themselves with recording themselves Right. On the one hand, that is such a powerful tool mm-hmm. towards all of these goals outlined in the book. And on the other hand, for you as the historian 200 years later, that's all that you have access to. Did you feel that conflict? Like, did you feel the pressure of the untold stories as you were sifting through the stories that you could find? Big time. There yeah. was a point during the writing process, I would say maybe I was maybe 80 percent in and I cried every day. Mm. every day from like 80% to crossing the finish line, I cried every day because I just knew that there was something that I was missing. There was somebody's story I wasn't going to be able to tell. There was something that I'm going to get wrong because so much Mm. of this has to be interpreted through my 21st century eyes, that there was going to be someone who popped up and said, no, 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 that that's completely inaccurate. That's wrong. That kept me up many, many nights. Mm -hmm. But I think what was comforting is that I know that my book exists kind of singularly in the YA space, but that there are other books that people can draw from. So a lot of this was drawn from biographies. Um, A lot of it was drawn, some of it was drawn from autobiographies that weren't really autobiographies, but have become autobiographies over time, like Sojourner Truth's autobiography. And so I felt sure that my research was solid, but I was also really nervous about just getting it wrong because you only really have one opportunity with this book to get it right. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're not going to have another centennial. You want to get it right this time. So I spent many nights worried about just messing it up, (laughs) to be honest. At the same time, it seems like it's an important thing to model, especially for young adults, right? Mm -hmm. That gaps in the record and the historical record are not accidents, that they're not. I mean, I say this as a historian of sexuality, right? Erasures exist for reasons. And that's a powerful thing for young people to recognize that what's in their history books is a result of a process and that you can easily, you know, reverse engineer who wrote the thing, depending on where they choose to focus or what source space they consider to be legitimate. That to me was something really powerful about this book. I feel like, you know, my middle school history certainly was all about what we could prove and what had been documented. And to say like, well, think about what isn't, what we don't know for sure what couldn't be documented, how important that might be to where we are today. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about that in terms of the New York Times' 1619 project. That's right. Yeah. There's so much about history that is literally like looking between the lines of figuring out what is not being said here. If you teach children that early, and I know that as someone who used to teach eighth graders social justice, if if you teach that to them early, it expands their whole worldview. They're much more curious. They ask the why question or the how question opposed to just taking the knowledge for face value. 
So instead of taking it as the teacher presents it, it teaches them to question everything and to really form a worldview that considers what have I not been told. That I think is important. And to be honest, is the reason why I said yes to writing the book. It's very cool. One one of the things that I thought was really interesting is how you, and I must admit, I'm not super familiar with the genre, never having written a YA history book before, but I thought it was interesting just how it's presented. It looked to me like a textbook. It really had a kind of textbook visual, which I'm sure your editor had something to do with Mm -hmm. and everything. But I thought it was also a very good choice because it, it sort of says look, this is a historical record. This is official. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just we don't have as much of it uh, because people couldn't, yeah, couldn't be photographed, for instance. They couldn't move about freely. Those who had been runaways or who whose legal status was unsure right. and who couldn't be in certain spaces. And so, therefore, we're just in a... Um, you know, this isn't going to be like George Washington crossing the Delaware, where there was like apparently a painter there or right. whatever. This is going to be a different looking textbook. Doesn't make it any less historic. And I thought that was just on a on a purely presentational level. I thought this is just a really great object to give to a young person because it really says like you know think about where this comes from that what where the matter that ends up in these books comes from. Yeah, thank you for that. And that was an intentional choice by my editor who had worked on kind of a counterpart to my book about the mainstream suffrage movement or kind of the, oh. the narrative that we always know. Hmm. And one of the, and it's structured similarly where there are, you know, boxes specifically for bios and then a longer narrative that weaves throughout. But one of the things that we realized as we collaborated to bring the book together was that my book was not going to come together as easily as that, <laughs> as the other book did. And that's primarily because, as I said, there are no photos many times. So there are photos throughout that entire book. I mean, photos on every page. There were literally women who I could not find. Like there are no photos. Or if there are photos, they're incorrect photos. Like that's no way that's that person. Like you were telling me that Sojourner Truth was Diana Ross. And that's (laughs) factually inaccurate. Unlikely, Um, yes. (laughs) Unlikely. And so really piecing it together in that way toward the middle, it got completely restructured because there was no way that it could continue in the way that it was originally presented because we were missing still so much history. So it was a really intentional choice to then break it out in that way so that as much of the history as we could fit in 170 odd pages could be there. Otherwise, there was so much we would have missed that it felt like it would have been a disservice to children and to the women in the book. Hmm. I have two questions about the title of the book, Lifting As We Climb. I would love it if you could give our listeners the historical context for where that line comes from. And it's such an apt, I guess the second part of my question is that it's such an apt way to describe how you behave as a writer and editor and cultural broker. So I would love for you to give us the historical context for the term. And I would love for you to talk about how it resonates with your own value system as a literary citizen. Yeah. Oh, literary citizen. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, So lifting as we climb is the mantra from the National Association of Colored Women which began in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as a collective of smaller women's groups. So there are women's groups all across the South and all across the Northeast that were really isolated from one another. They, were, they didn't have a national agenda. They couldn't cobble together their resources because they were so isolated. And so the National Association for Colored Women brought them all together. They figured that they had more power together as a coalition than they had apart. 
So that is where the phrase comes from. It's a model that I think I hold dear because the first time I heard it was in college. It was said to me by another journalist named Georgia Dawkins. And I tweeted it at the time or put it on Facebook. And as I was working on this book, it popped up in the memories. And I was like, whoa, that's really a full circle moment. If I have been thinking about this idea for a long time, and now it becomes the title of the book and had been the working title from the beginning. So from the time the book was brought to me, like the working title was Lifting As We Climb. So that felt really like kismet almost. I would say as a literary citizen, a term I'm now going to use, thank you, that I, that I now love, it just feels really important to leave the door open. That's the way that, that I approach it. Whenever I, I have the opportunity to speak to students, what I always say is that it is not accidental or coincidental that I'm the only Black woman helming a historically feminist publication. That is not an accident. That is tokenization. That is what I call now representation, but it is not inclusion. And so for me, lifting as we climb is a matter of sharing resources among writers, offering them opportunities, creating a pipeline for them to navigate a really, really difficult business, approaching every situation with compassion and grace and regarding people as whole human beings instead of uh, having a transactional relationship. If you do something for me, I pay you, our relationship is done. Really seeing that as a genuine relationship, an authentic relationship, a way of making connection with people and showing them that I am not here because I just worked really hard. Like that is not it. I am here because so many other people lifted me. And so now it's literally my job to do the same. Not only an honor to say, you know, Zora Neale Hurston and Alice Walker, who have this incredible story, a posthumous story of Alice Walker putting a literal marker on Zora Neale Hurston's grave. I feel like I owe that to them and owe it to the people who are coming behind me to model what that looks like, to model what it's like to have collective resources and to support one another in a genuine, authentic way. Well, I love the fact, I mean, that's it's so interesting that this is how you frame your own process in writing the book, because it's, of course, also the question of what responsibility you have to a collective is also behind the struggle for voting rights. Does my dignity diminish someone else's, right? Which is the model of, unfortunately, of some of the women featured in the book where they really seem to say, you know, of, co of course saying, you can't treat me like this other person, right? Or you ought to treat me like this other person is an important appeal to equality for any rhetoric of equality. But at the same time, if you then diminish the dignity of another human being, right? And throughout early suffragism, this, this was done very frequently. You mentioned the example, obviously, of, of African-Americans. But uh, for instance, at Stanford's law school, there's a historian who's working on how the same thing is true for the mentally ill. But it's also done with immigrants, right? How come this person, obviously unqualified, allegedly, right, uh, can vote, but I can't, right? And this idea that, that somehow someone getting their dignity means that someone else has to be less deserving. It's a very seductive model. And I think that that's right. That's not inclusion. So this kind of model that you're describing where only collective uplift can really uh, set the individual free uh, strikes me as both the theme of the book and obviously the driving force in, uh, in making it happen. Yeah. And I mean, it feels as if we are in that moment as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic, where your social contract is not only to yourself, where, you know, a lot of young people are saying, 
well, I'll go out and I'll be asymptomatic. So it's fine. Not considering the fact that you could be an asymptomatic carrier who can come into your home and kill an immunocompromised person or your grandparent or your parent or sibling. Everyone cannot handle this virus the way that you can. And so your social contract is to protecting your community. Not so much, sure, you will be fine, but what does your decision, what do your decisions do for the people who are in your community? And it's the same thing with the Black women of this book who were very committed to what they call racial uplift, which is a flawed idea for many, many, many reasons. It was very classist. It was very exclusionary. Um, It became the women's club movement or the black women's club movement, which basically pathologized poor black women. Like I said, you can't be a good mother if you're poor. I mean, it was it was a mess. But at its core, it was designed to say that we are better together than we are separate. And that if we combine all of our resources and all of our knowledge, we can really make something happen. Like we can move the needle for social justice. Right. That is an idea I think that anyone, no matter what age, can hold on to. And it really does feel prescient during our current pandemic. It really does. I mean, I'm thinking here of this. I don't know if you saw the article about uh, where someone just followed around um, wealthy white people around in suburban Atlanta mall. Oh, yes. That is a brain melting <laughs> expose, frankly. Mm-hmm. And all they did was follow people into anthropology. But um, yeah, the, the ability, the inability or the ability of these people to basically decide that whoever is selling them the pants is not part of their community, that they somehow don't matter, standing kind of right in front of them. You think, I mean, it's stomach turning, but it's also like, wow, it actually takes a lot of work to be able to do that. But I guess after 500 years, people in this country have habituated themselves quite well to doing this. But it is it, it is striking that there's barely any reporting intervention. This person really seems to have just walked around with a tape recorder and it works really well because you just... It, it almost requires no commentary. Um, this uh, this lack of moral imagination uh, in saying this could be the person who brings it home and it kills someone. It's like, well, no, this person is clearly not going to be from their particular suburb or they're going to be of a different race. And therefore, somehow they've rationalized this for themselves. It reminds me deeply of this story I read in the New York Times about this couple who went to paradise, as they called it. I believe it was Bora Bora and they got stuck there. Oh, the Maldives. I read that too. Yes, the Maldives. And they became stuck there. And the people who work there have to stay there because they can't go home until the last person leaves the resort. So you get to have this luxurious service where people wait hand and foot on you every single day. And in exchange for that, the people who are doing that get what? Like they're simply there. They are not there out of service to you or an honor to you. They are there because you won't leave. That level of selfishness, to be quite frank, is the problem and has been the problem for a long time. Because had Susan B. Anthony said, if Black men get the right to vote, why don't we form a coalition with them to prioritize the passing of a suffrage amendment the history would be completely different. It would have happened, I don't know when it would have happened, but long before 1965, there likely would have been less lynching happening throughout the South and the East, to be clear. And everyone would have gotten what they wanted. 
But because people see their needs, desires as everyone else's priority, it becomes really easy to end up in a bubble where your thoughts and decisions matter above all other. Right. And that whatever it is that you think and feel, regardless of the consequence that it imposes on someone else, it is worth pursuing. So I don't know how Susan B. Anthony and the other suffragists in this book spent so many decades being okay (laughs) with what was happening in their quest for the vote. But I imagine that had they lived until 1965, we would think of them and remember them differently because they're, I would think that their own thinking would have evolved. Hopefully. I, I don't know that for sure, but that is my hope. Um, I have an idea. Feel free to say no. I was thinking about the white feminists who are in both this card deck and your book. And I was wondering if we could play a lightning round of grade the white feminist <laughs> where Yvette gives a letter grade to these women. Let's okay. do it. So we've already gone over Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth. Obviously, we're giving them A's. How do we feel about Lucretia Mott? I would give Lucretia Mott a C. Okay. Let me be clear. Lucretia Mott started my book Mm -hmm. originally. She was the first person mentioned on the very first page. Lucretia Mott did a lot of good work to try to bridge the gap and then just got lost. So I would say a C. Okay. So graded. Uh, Susan B. Anthony. F. No, I would say a D minus. D minus for Susan B. Anthony. Spicy. Who knew when to pass on the torch, like knew when it was time to pass on the torch of the organization, National Association for Women. Knew to pass it on, but a D minus overall. Fair yeah. enough. I, I accept that grade. Um, Lucy Stone. Ooh. Lucy Stone. C a C. All right. Okay. Care to elaborate? Uh, I think Lucy, Lucy tried to do coalition work, was really involved with inviting black suffragists in, um, but then also just got lost in, should I prioritize my own needs above everyone else? And then did. So, I mean, you tried and then you failed. So let's see. All right. We have two left. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. (laughs) Also a D minus. D minus. Totally. Mm -hmm. I think that's generous. Um, Alice Paul. Alice Paul. I have a soft spot for Alice Paul. I do too. Please go on. Alice Paul for me here is probably a B. Ooh. A B minus. Okay. A B minus. Okay. B minus. Okay. White feminist on a roll. I say that because... I admire her tenacity. I admire the fact that she refused to be complacent. When they were saying, let's just lobby state by state, she was like, no, let's interrupt this whole entire operation, this whole inauguration. But then on the flip side, I think that she also got to a point where inclusion was difficult for her because she thought it would detract from her larger goal which ended up hurting some suffragists, particularly Ida B. Wells Barnett. And so I have a soft spot for Alice Paul, so I'll give her a B minus, but she could have done much better around that march on Washington. I concur. Laura, I, I applaud your uh, your restraint and in not including Francis Willard in this, because uh, I'm, I'm guessing we would have, um, there would have been no. no more gentlewoman's F, but a, but a straight up F. 
F. Fail. Uh, Dorothy Day? Dorothy Day. Um, She gets kind of a cameo in your book. She does. Uh, I mean C-ish. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I feel you. And, I feel you. And I only say that because Dorothy Day went to the wall for what she believed in. Yeah. Just at the expense of everyone else. Right. <laughs> well, it's like she was part of the group that went to prison, you know, for protesting. Yeah. She got she yep. got the force feeding. She brought it out to she described that to the world. But yeah, in terms of greater, more sustained uh solidarity with black women, definitely was not no, there in the record. Yeah. No. No, Whew, I could play this game all day. Let's grade some white feminists. <laughs> I'm so glad you found this card deck. I mean, what would, I'm what would... obsessed. <laughs> I thought we it was need in my a office. We need a new game for black feminists. We Somebody do. I up, mean, like... franchisers, listen up. I'm a little surprised that your publisher sort of didn't didn't put one out. I mean, I guess it would be a hard thing to promote right now, but it um, makes sense. You know, I, I feel like I feel like if they need, uh, you know, call me. Uh, <laughs> Viking call. Viking publishers, if you need any uh, promotion help because i think i mean especially someone like uh you know josephine st pierre ruffin right like I mean, uh, would look great on a on a playing card right glasses game is on point uh, I mean, really, there there are there's some money left on the table that's all i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in the Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. We are especially grateful there to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is R. Lanier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following product services and entities. Blue Apron. Hymns, Casper Mattresses, the Trump administration, the Hoover Institution, and that stupid wine club started by two MIT grads. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We are at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and shoot us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. 